Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a writer, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, two different takes on public health and well-being. Sir Jeremy Farrer is director of the Wellcome Trust, the British medical charity that spends close to £1 billion every year to improve global health through research and education funded by a £26 billion endowment. Wellcome has spent 25 years unravelling the human genome and also been involved in breakthroughs that track the inner workings of the brain, diagnose prostate cancer and tackle Ebola outbreaks. Before joining Wellcome six years ago, Farah was the director of Oxford University's Clinical Research Unit in Vietnam, where his research interests were infectious diseases and tropical health. Nick Pearson is chief executive of Parkrun, a sporting movement that began life as a free five-kilometre time trial in southwest London 15 years ago. It's still free, but now 300,000 runners of all abilities take part in events across 21 countries every weekend. Pearson was an elite runner, and he has 25 years' experience in the sports industry. He used to run Sweatshop, an independent specialist sports retailer. In this podcast, we talk about risk-taking, developing a campaigning voice, and the lean organisations of tomorrow. I began the conversation asking Jeremy about his starting point for leading the Wellcome Trust. Firstly, I don't think there's any set model for doing any of this. I think you have to be clear that you are who you are. You're, you're bringing yourself <laughs> with all of your foibles and all of your biases and all the rest of the thing. But most of all, you're bringing a sense of, of fun, um, a sense of what, you, of what you can do and, and what is possible to do. And we're just in an incredibly privileged position, as, as you say. We have a, a very large endowment. We're independent. We, we're not we don't have shareholders. We don't have government. Um, and I very strongly believe, even more in today's society, that that brings a great responsibility. And, and, and that responsibility is to have the greatest impact on health for the maximum number of people around the world. Um, and, and you need to bring that inspiration. But I think most of all, a can-do sense that, you know, you've given this great opportunity and you're really going to use it for the maximum benefit of everybody. And how do you pull that apart then? Because you have certain priorities. You're getting quite heavily into mental health at the moment. There's obviously a lot you've done, you know, public health and, you know, working on new vaccinations and treatments for things like Ebola you've done over a number of years. So how do you decide that? Is that a board decision or is this where you you and your expertise come in? Yeah, it's a bit of both. Obviously, in the end, of course, it's all a recommendation from the executive and the board then debates and essentially approves that that's the mecha- that's the governance structure which which i think is entirely a- appropriate and the ideas come in both directions or all directions there's more than more than two groups involved here i think one of the, the things i would say is i think often people are and i it's true of me now certainly in the past frightened of making decisions sometimes you have to embrace uncertainty you're trying to get as much evidence as you can should we do ebola should we do mental health should we do diabetes in the end there probably aren't bad decisions mm. There are just decisions to be made. And, mm. and and I don't think you should try and take, A, the personality of the organisation or indeed your own personality out of those decisions mm. because ultimately you're accountable for them. And I think sometimes we worry about having too much evidence when in truth you're never going to have as much evidence as you may love and you're going to have to make decisions in uncertainty. Mm. And instead of seeing that in a frightening way, embrace it because actually from that, in my view, the opportunities come. And Nick at Parker, and I'm interested in your approach when you came in in 2015. Was it about a sense of fun? It was a fantastically fun organisation. Well, I'd agree with Jeremy. I think you are what you are and you're bringing yourself into that leadership role, not necessarily a, a fully 
documented plan and set of details that go with it. And largely what you'll do is understand the environment and the objectives and and bring your skills to the best that you can to drive your organisation in the right direction to achieve that. I think I'm informal in terms of my leadership style. I think there's definitely a, uh, a challenge to conventional hierarchies and conventional structures. And I believe in the value of every single contribution that the team member makes and that if you're a collective, you're a team, you're working together, then all parts of that team need to feel significant and that they're committed to the objective and that they serve a purpose in achieving that objective. So I suppose informal is is absolutely appropriate because parkrun has been a, a phenomenon. It's been a very organic phenomenon. It doesn't probably doesn't take kindly to someone coming in and and stamping any sense of formality on it. Yeah, maybe. Whilst informal, that doesn't mean that we don't need structure and we don't need appropriate organisation. And exactly like Jeremy said, you know, your governance has to be on point, otherwise you're going to fall over. But I think my view, and actually the view of the leadership team at Park Run would be there's a single individual at Park Run, and that's the founder. The founder would always be the founder, and without the founder, we wouldn't we wouldn't have Park Run. Aside from that, we're all custodians of that incredible legacy, and we're part of a team that includes some full time staff and a massive group of volunteers that that come out every single week and facilitate that. and And it is a collective achievement sure. it's not a individual um it's not an individual achievement so what did you do when you came in in 2015 what were what were the sort of highlights when you you took over running this because there wasn't a, was there a ceo before you it was really Paul, i would say okay so it was slightly fragmented so there were different territories and different organizational purposes that had got slightly pulled apart in an attempt to deliver independence and to devolve some areas of responsibility. And I think that was Paul, the founder's kind of desire to share as much of that out in a way that that he felt was appropriate. What I probably found was, not what I probably found, what I definitely found (laughs) was that that didn't optimise the ability for Parkrun to succeed. It didn't optimise the ability for Parkrun to generate revenue. There was lots of duplication going on. So I had to look at the way things were being done and and come up with a plan and and a direction for creating the most effective or the most productive group of people really that's quite a hard conversation to have with a founder jeremy i suppose your founder wasn't around when you arrived six years ago henry welcome who's, who set up the trusted 36 who's no longer with us but you were nodding along to what nick said but uh, were you surprised by some things you found when you took over six years ago yeah of course and i i i, I do agree with how nick's just describes things in, in some ways we went in an opposite direction actually and and this i think speaks to how many common things are shared across organizations i, I think many organizations commercial sector academic sector philanthropy Anthropic sector uh, government share many of the same challenges. It's how do you get this balance between top-down hierarchy? Uh, it's clearly that maybe there's a one decision maker in an organisation or a very small number versus the creative chaos of of a commune or, or, or as you described as you came in. And, and we all think there's a balance point there, but I'm, I'm certainly I would say we we I have um, struggled quite to find that. Uh, we've made great progress, um, uh, but I think it's it's when I. 
I came in, and it, it, this is no criticism of the past, because I think the things that were done were absolutely right at the time. But but inevitably, you bring your own personality. And, and I found quite a hierarchical organization where I, I felt there were just too few decision points in the organization and too much was having to come up to a small number of people mm-hmm. and wanted to uh, liberate the community within Welcome and outside to embrace that uncertainty and be more creative because I think we're a creative organization. I would be the first to admit we haven't got that, didn't get that quite right. We, we're, I hope, moving in a better direction now. And it's a balance between top-down and bottom-up creativity. I think I was also surprised by, I'm on the edge, I think, where I, I come from a research background, I enjoy uncertainty. I probably overstated how much others might enjoy a bit of uncertainty and that we <laughs> fully appreciate there are many people who do like certainty. They <laughs> they like certainty in their working lives and how decisions are made. And I probably put too much of my personality into into the rest of the organization in that regard. Isn't one of the great things about welcome and about your role is this is a five-year term and you're you're into into the second stint there now. So um, you have a set amount of time to find out all these things and get the sort of machine running how you want it to run. Yeah, I think it is. And we've really underlined that. I, I think it was always implicit in the past, but we've made it really explicit. I think in on the main, people in, in leadership positions around in, in organisations can often stay too long. I think people on the whole tend to stay a little bit too long. I used to be a real questioner of the US two-term system in the presidents, thinking, gosh, if 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 democracy wanted to re-elect you for a third term, why not let it? Actually, I've become a huge fan of it. And I think somewhere between eight and 10 years feels about right to me. Um, it gives you an endpoint. It gives you an energy. It gives you a urgency to make change, as opposed to just saying we can do it all, all at any point in the future. So I really like the five plus five uh, cycle we're now in. And there's something. Um, it, it's almost like the world is is playing to welcome strengths. I mean, if there are breakthroughs to be made, much of the work that needs doing now, obviously, want to get your opinion. It's multidisciplinary these days. The the best breakthroughs cut across so many different sciences and disease cuts across so many different borders. So international organizations with a sort of a, a the range of, of welcome are of the moment. I, I agree totally agree with you. That and that's that's the huge opportunity. It is also the responsibility because I think in a world that's maybe increasingly nationalistic and insular, those of us who are free to to think beyond borders, as you say, or boundaries or scientific endeavor, I think have got a real real responsibility to stand up and make that case because I think the world is maybe going dangerously in a different direction mm-hmm. and our freedom, our independence should bring us the voice to, to speak about that. And for me, the reason I came back to Welcome and I knew it from my previous life was because it linked these three things which I felt were so important, which is science, innovation and society. And uh, by science, I mean anything from social science to basic biomedical science to public health to whatever. But if you don't have basic science, if you don't have science and you don't link that to Uh, innovation and potentially hopefully commercialization and you don't then embed that in the societies you're operating in I don't think you'll maximize the benefit of the science so for me it was those three overlapping circles that attracted me back here and I think as we've moved on to 2019 now those three things together have become even more important. Mm. Nick once you've addressed the organizational drift if you like that you talked about when you found in 2015 I guess one of the big challenges for you is make this organization financially sustainable. So how do you go about how do you go about that? Because the brilliance of Parkrun is it's free for all. Yeah, forever. Forever. Mm-hmm. I mean that's quite a that's quite an offer. So you you have to go out and find the money without compromising the integrity of the organization. Yeah, and I think that the first question is to understand what's compromising the integrity of the organization <laughs> because it's a totally subjective 
point of view. And, and I think what I inherited, what, what I came into was a fear that any sort of um, uh, commercial enterprise was would be seen as compromising the integrity of the organization. And so their progress around creating sustainable financial answers had been stifled and limited by that. And so so I think the first thing that we needed to do was to understand and be comfortable and confident in creating a successful business. You know, a successful business is good for Park Run. A successful commercial operation is good for Park Run. And as long as we're clear about the things that we're protecting and the things that we're protecting are that it would always be free for everybody and that your your experience on a Saturday morning when you come to your park is is that it should be as close as it was to the first event on the first day in, in, in 2004, largely unpolluted by the messaging and impact and influence that you see at mainstream conventional um, yeah. sporting yeah. events. So, so and, and, and not because I think those organisations are polluters of our world, I just think that that's a community event in a community location and the beauty is that that's what you're engaging with mm. that's what you're embracing with so that that's what you're embracing so so actually once you've defined the fact that that's what we're protecting and everything else in, is in play it becomes a lot easier to start to think about the kind of activities that mm. you could participate in that would generate the revenue that yeah. that that makes you sustainable and there's vitality the healthcare provider yeah. there's a number of them on, on the website that, yeah. that support you but in a subtle way not in a Yeah, and and fair play to all of those sponsors. You know, what we're selling is an entirely different level of engagement to any other physical activity or sports provider. The deal is that you've got to be subtle and you've got to be low-key on a Saturday morning and that the opportunity is that you can partner alongside us and align yourself to the trust that park runners have in our brand and our integrity which allows your message to really resonate but that's a pretty difficult sell you know i can either have two miles of branding at that commercial running event or i can have a foot at yours (laughs) well you've you've got you've got across it you've got over it somehow jeremy Mm. with your with your funding i mean you you can make things happen because of your spending power and it also looks like there's so many areas where you convene is that some, something that you actively wanted to grow you can you can expand your influence if you bring in three partners with 50 million pounds or, mm. or something yeah so very different scenario to where where nick is but i think what nick is talking about there is just keeping at the heart of what you do that the values and the principles that and the ethos of why you set up in the first place and and w- one of the things we've did for instance we we a lot of people used to refer to us as as the trust and of course there's trust in the nhs there's trust in the the branding trust in the NHS trusts and other things. So we wanted to reconnect it with with actually our founder, which is why we now refer to ourselves as welcome, because for me, he stood for those three. He stood for globalisation long before it was a, a phrase. He stood for science, stood for innovation, but he was also, you know, really into the humanities and the social sciences right. and the role that, that societies play in, in making good things and bad things uh, happen. But we are... Yes, we're we're big in the sense we have a, a very significant endowment, which obviously looks huge from the outside. But the challenges of our time, whatever you describe them as, mental health, diabetes, uh, climate change and health, uh, drug resistance, uh, epidemics, 
these these can't be solved by us alone. And one of the things I wanted to bring in was a sense that, yes, we were big, but we were much more willing to work in partnership with others mm. um, because we don't have the, the spending power or the authority or on our own to take on these big global challenges, which are almost existential in their threat. Yeah. And I'll come on to a, uh, a few of them, but I'm also interested in what, what comes through in a lot of your literature and conversations over the last couple of years is a real willingness to campaign as well. This is not about just spending money. It's actually having a voice and an opinion and shaping the, the debate about public health. It's great to hear that from the outside. That was certainly the intention. And it goes back to having, whether it's Nick or us, it's the, it's, this independence is a really important thing uh, in today's world. You're, the, the political winds of the moment uh, take that away from you. It's difficult sometimes in the commercial sector. Uh, if we are independent, you have, in my view, a responsibility to use that. And you shouldn't be afraid of of explaining yourself. And if that's called advocacy or campaigning, then we have to do it because I think I think otherwise we're not being true to to our in, independence. So yeah, we have been more willing to take a position on things. We appreciate that not everyone will agree with us, and we will therefore be criticised. And that we have to accept. Those of us with independence have got an absolute responsibility to use it. And then, as a, this is not just personal leadership, mm. it's the organisation's leadership. Are these conversations you have with governments to harangue them to do more in certain areas? Or is it about big pharma, stop concentrating on these first world diseases and must help yeah, the whole world? It is, it, it is any, all of those. It's certainly, it's certainly governments, you know, what are, what are governments doing around drug resistant infections or, or international partnerships or, or climate change? Uh, and drug resistance is where antibiotics just don't work anymore. That's where antibiotics just do not work to treat infections. That's right. Um, but it's beyond that. It, yes, it's pharma, but it's also um, the role other commercial enterprises play. I, I have an increasing concern that as the public sector starts to retreat from some of its responsibilities and the commercial sector starts to chase quick returns of large amounts of, of return percentage-wise, that we're leaving a big gap in the middle, which is really not now covered by the public or the commercial sector. Uh, and that's going to leave our infrastructure, our schools, mm. our education, our, our research endeavour, I think, it, in, into a worrying phrase where previously there was, a, yeah. there was a combination. Nick, it feels like that the sort of the world in between that Jeremy describes is actually where Park Run is. And, and, and mm. I'm interested in what you regard as your successes thus far. Is it something like taking this message to the world? Because you're in 20-odd countries now every weekend. I think that the successes thus far would be in focusing what we're doing on broadening our participation towards people that will have the biggest benefit and the biggest health impact of uh, of, of physical activity. So, so, so for me, when I joined, I found an organisation that was committed to supporting communities that wanted a park run in their in their area. Was making decisions based around wanting to help people that were the least active, but didn't have any strategical focus, direction, or commitment mm. to doing that. And I think what we've been able to do over the last four years is be is really, really articulate the purpose of what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is to support communities to become healthier. To support communities to become healthier, we need to introduce physical activity into people that don't do enough physical activity or don't do physical activity at all. And now we've been able to articulate that. It allows us to, one, direct our projects very, very specifically in those areas, um, and two, work really hard to understand what are the things that are stopping people 
from being as active as they would like or doing physical activity at all. Because the, the, the paradox, of course, is is nobody wants to be inactive and nobody wants to be unhealthy. If you read enough toxic newspapers, you'll come to the conclusion that you know people make that as a, a as a deliberate choice mm. and, and and it's something that that they're voted for nobody's ever voted for that they they want to be more active they want to be healthier and so where we see ourselves evolving to is being that positive community arm around the shoulder that that encourages mm. supports and champions them in doing the things that they want to do and tell me about you know the, the the way in which you do that is with this incredible volunteer workforce you've got 35,000 people out every weekend marshalling timing i always wonder when um, you're effectively a small organization sat on top of a vast volunteer workforce like this to what degree can you lead them if you like well, it's an excellent question. You, you, you definitely can't lead them by by memo, by direction, by directive, by rules, or, or, or by too many rules. And you lead them predominantly by uh, vision, by culture, by championing what they're doing, by celebrating mm. what they're doing, by showing the world the positive impact and consequences that they're having. I think, you know, to go back to the conversation that we were having earlier about it's a team and every team is making a contribution and that contribution is towards a, an incredible global objective and, and it's trying to attach them to their significance in that yeah. in that overall mission. And... Um, I think as well, it's about working really hard to make that that experience that they're having in that volunteer capacity as positive and as beneficial to them mm. um, as you possibly sure. can, and for them to enjoy it. Sure. And Jeremy, what what, what about your people? What do they get from you? Well, I, I think we're we're what we're very good at is is again very similar. I mean, the 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 high level, the mission, uh, the values, the, the the impact. You know, it's very difficult to argue against park run. It's very difficult to argue against trying to improve people's health um, and and do that through research. Um, I think our challenge has always been to to how do you then take that vision and principles and values down through a strategy, and sure. then an implementation of that. That's that's I think the the thing we all get challenges goes back to the earlier conversation about top down bottom up and the rest of it and what has been the what if you pick out one or two successes so far from particular things that you've you've backed whether it's a sort of ebola investment or what what are you particularly proud of i i think the other thing that we brought in a few years ago was was to continue to do what we were doing in a traditional way of funding research but then bringing in another part of a portfolio for one of a better word um some some areas of real focus uh where you say look we're trying to do this thing um and we're going to try and do it over the next five plus five ten years um vaccines for epidemics drug resistance mental health in that, that those categories so you do what you're doing through your traditional routes where you're trying to find ten thousand flowers blooming and that's a great way to fund science and research uh, but then you're also bringing some focused areas where you say in the next 10 years we really want to make a difference too mental health, data and health, uh, whatever it is. It, you, you can choose whatever you want, but then bring real focus to that. And that means bringing science together. It means bringing social science together. But it does mean policy, communications, advocacy, uh, legal stuff, um, the community, the society. And there I think you, can only, you can't bring that when you're going through our traditional mechanisms of, of funding. Mm. So things, but things like the—I mean, we've mentioned a couple of them—but I was drawn to this sort of idea of the neuropixels that you helped, uh, you know, develop. You are the, there's seemingly quite a lot we don't yet know about how the brain works, 
And these are tiny things, the breadth of a hair that are looking inside the brain to really find out how it all pulls together. Yeah, I, I mean, everyone knows just how complex the human brain is um, and maybe one of the most complex things in the universe. Um, we're not at the scale to address that. We, there's no way we can address that. But there are by convening or leading. Sometimes we convene, sometimes we lead. But by bringing together other philanthropic and government agencies and other bodies, including the commercial sector, to try and address a common problem mm. and then develop platforms where people are willing to share that across those platforms mm. in a way that, you know, philanthropy and, and funding from governments can be quite siloed. Um, they can quite have their own egos. They, they want to do their thing and have their name on it. But to break that down. No, and to, egos. <laughs> and to work across people and say we're going to collectively own this to go forward to address a big problem which none of us could do on our own. Mm. That's, in my view, what we can bring in terms of partnership. Mm. Nick, I'm interested in this organisation gets bigger and bigger, how you keep in touch at the grassroots. I mean, I guess you have to be running every Saturday morning. It probably is in your contract. Um, <laughs> but then do you also have to, when you launch in Tokyo, you have to be there? Or do you, do you check it's going well and check standards are up and so on? So I think we do a couple of things. And we're really, really, really lucky in that we've got a group of staff who are immersed in their local community and participate either through taking part or through volunteering just about every single week. So whereas your normal corporate convention is to, you know, send everybody off to the shop floor on a, you know, Christmas week or the, there's some mechanism through your organisation to to try to reconnect your head office staff with the with the shop floor. Our teams are there naturally, organically, every single week. They're passionate advocates of what we're doing. And so 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 on a domestic level, in actual fact, you know, the conversation on a Friday about where you'll be that weekend is the most excited one that's probably happening that and the Monday morning about where they've been. So, so, so you do so, have to do it every Saturday. It's part, you feel it's part of it. Nobody has to do yeah. it at all. But are you, people, as, I mean, you personally, you pe- feel you want to be there. People do do it because yeah. they want to be there. Yeah, that's it. That, that, that's exactly right. So so I wouldn't run every single week, but I would do a combination of running and volunteering over the course of the year. And then so tell, I'd, yeah. tell me internationally then about you getting out to, because it's Denmark, Japan, do people turn up knowing they will get the same parkrun experience, whether they're in Wimbledon or yeah, pretty much, yeah. pretty much. Amazing. The, 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 it's uh, that's something that I can't take any credit for whatsoever. You know that that <laughs> that phenomena existed well before I started. You know, an event in Soweto would give you exactly the same experience as San Francisco or oh. or Sunderland. But yeah, in terms of international travel, personally. I will try and avoid it. I think it it feels a little bit egotistical again. You know, flying around the world to experience this phenomena. However, you are, the, you are an anti CEO, you know. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> However, th- there is necessity that sits in there. So that so outside of that anti CEO CEO position, there is some necessity. You know, it is really really important that as an organisation we are attached, mm. that we are on the same side, that mm. we're working as a team. Um, and so it is necessary. I, I did go to the launch of Japan, but I went to the launch of Japan because we brought sponsors on board before yep. we started. They were massive organisations. Culturally, for them to feel it was we were respecting them, yeah. it was uh, it was an important thing to do. It, it, that wasn't something I would normally do. Yeah. 
Jeremy, just to move on to skills that you've gained along the way. You weren't always a leader. Um, you had a research background. Researchers don't often make great leaders. It's all it's collaborative, not necessarily someone out, out in front, I would say. So when did you pick all this up? Firstly, I don't, yeah, as I'm sure everyone would say, you, you never really pick it up. I mean, you're still picking it up. You're still picking it up. I, I, you know, I'm sure there were people that were born into leadership, but but I don't think there are many. And I, and I think everyone continues to pick it up. What I've learned in the last week has probably been as complicated as anything you learn all the way along. Mm. I, I, um, yeah, I came from a research background. I mean, for the last 20 years, I, you know, I, I ran a, a research group of maybe in total a thousand people or so in multiple countries. And, and uh, um, so inevitably across cultures, you pick up some things during that. I was very interested, though, at some point to come back and ask Nick, because one of the, our challenges, I think, we say we're, we want to bring innovation science and, and societies together, but how define that science and society? And, and how do you, how do you embrace and bring in an inclusive ownership of what we all do? How do we ensure that in what we do, society is really represented in its, all its inclusivity? And how do you ensure in Parkrun that you get people from such diverse backgrounds? Everyone wants to be healthy, but yeah. how, do you, how do you, I think it's something we certainly struggle with. Yeah, look, I think there's, again, we're in a very fortunate position for on, a, on multiple uh, levels in that, one, our events are not, the commercial success is not measured on an event-by-event event basis. So we are able to put an event in any community, anywhere, in any of our territories without the need for massive participation to justify it. So, so, so we can take as long as it takes for that event to generate interest from that community. And that's really, really unusual. Almost any other organisation will only invest in a particular location if there's a commercial return, which is normally measured by participation. And that is one of the reasons that the most socially deprived locations get left behind with regards to everything. There's no commercial justification to supporting that area. Well, we're not measured by the same metrics, so, so, so we can do that, which puts us in a really fortunate position. I think we also understand that local communities own those events, local communities run those events, and without the local community, they don't exist. And so we've also seen great relevance in terms of who's volunteering and then and then who participates. And so basically the, the inherent structure that says you have an event in your community if you want one, but the deal is that you support it from a volunteering point of view has meant that we are able to engage with that community because it's being delivered by the community. It's not being delivered by a by a national corporate. It's not being delivered by, you know, white middle class yeah. guys in yeah. chinos and polo shirts. Yeah. It's 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 largely being delivered by people they feel and can empathise and, 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 and engage with. Now, that still doesn't mean that we don't have challenges around diversity and, and, and all of those kind of things because currently volunteering is still dominated by certain demographics. However, we can kind of poke at that a little bit and we can use our influence to to try and increase that diversity of community engagement in the knowledge that that then will impact directly participation. I think the other thing that tallies with that, Nick, is you, is you said to me that the, you, you've worked very hard. Turnover's globally about £4 million a year, and you, you've worked hard to keep this really, really lean. There are certain things that, that experts, in inverted commas, tell you you need by now. 
and you're quite willing not to have them. That's our business model. Our business model is to is to do one to pick on a point that Jeremy made earlier, to have a laser sharp focus, to really, really, really understand what it is that we're doing. And I think that in terms of, you said anti-CEO, I I think I'm a little bit anti-corporate in that I think the future for almost all organisations is redefining what lean is and redefining what productivity is. And, And I think that there is a lack of focus and therefore organizations built around things that they don't need to be doing and shouldn't be doing because they've they've lost what that focus is so so i think for us it's about laser sharp focus only do what we are committed to doing mm-hmm. and make sure that we're absolutely doing the maximum we can with the minimum level of resource and yeah. investment yeah and that's how we will be sustainable for 10 and 20 years mm. We won't be sustainable if we build a model that needs to double in size every Mm. two and a half years like our participation Mm. is because our costs will spiral and spiral and spiral. And when we look in our sector at the challenges around, you know, all of a sudden there's a reduction in government investment and Mm. all of those things that have have left these huge organisations vulnerable Mm. because they were too big in the first place. Jeremy, it makes you want to go back and uh, (laughs) review the budget lines. (laughs) Um, Can I go back? We almost got back into your CV. You talked about the the research unit. It was the Oxford University's clinical research unit in Vietnam. You were there for 18 years. And when we spoke before, there was an incident that you described to me where there was SARS and there was bird flu. And I think you were leading a team. You were on the wards. And there was real life or death, not just for the patients, but for for you as the as the carers and i think you probably had to you know hold your nerve and hold everyone's nerve in your team at that time i'd just love to hear your <laughs> recollections of that which you probably brush off now as as, as nothing but was probably no huge. i would never brush Great. them off i mean it was yeah it was 15 years or so ago yeah. now or so and uh i mean I'm, i i always sleep well at night but yeah those you, I, I think anybody that says they brush these things off is being at least forgetting the past. I yeah. mean, no, it was a very, very frightening time. A character called Carlo Abani uh, was a very good friend with three young children. Um, first person to identify SARS in in Hanoi in uh, in two thousand and three or two thousand and four. Died of SARS and uh, close friend. And then just a few months later, uh, bird flu, as you say, came out. And uh, mm. you know, those moments, it's it's when a, a little bit about what I talked about about uncertainty. You, you really have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Um, SARS had never been known before. Bird flu may have been the next 1918 influenza pandemic. You, you've no idea. Uh, lots of people are dying. The, the death rate of these uh, people is tragically high. Um, you've no idea if it's going to be transmitted to you. You don't go home at night mm. in case you take it to your family. No, it was, um, yeah, it was a very, very frightening time. And is that a moment as a, because people say that leaders should always be honest. Is that a moment when you um, you need to be a little bit dishonest with your team because actually you don't know how bad it could be, as you say? Yeah, I don't, but I don't think it's dishonest. I think it's honest to say, look, we we you know you don't have to be here. Hmm. Nobody's forcing you to come in and look after these patients. It's up to you. Um, only those that are willing to do that should come here. Uh, and of course, when that happens, everyone comes because people are incredibly committed to public service and the rest of stuff. But it, you can't take away the fear from it. And, you, and I don't think you should hide the fear either or be embarrassed by it. I mean, you know, the sharing of the fear and, and uh, what your limits are. And, and you do question your professionalism. You, you question why you're there. You know, you're not Vietnamese. Why, why are you sitting in the middle of a, of a government? 
government hospital in Vietnam. Of course you do. You and you yeah. should be honest about all of those things. Yeah. Um, it leaves a not a scar, but it certainly leaves a, a major turning point in your own sort of career and and life, really. And you wonder what it's all you that you you value every day as a result. And, and you value yeah. every day results. That's right. What about mentorship? The people that have helped you on your way to sort of steer your career. Yeah, I think you know we all have mentors and sponsors and supporters and. And I and they're, they're, you know it's often perceived that it'll be older than you. I think it's often younger than you. I think re- recently gone through here at Welcome uh, reverse mentorship, uh, which has been invaluable. Um, I this think is when people show you how to show, show you how to use mobile phone apps and things. Yeah, it? it's that, but it's no, it's more of of you know it's not you as a relatively senior person and relatively old mentoring somebody that's younger. It's potentially younger people. To, you know, advising you about how you're coming across. I think I just found it incredibly mm. powerful over a sort of six week window, and and we'll do some more in the in the yeah. future. But yeah, the, the mentors you have, I, I, I think realizing they're mentors at the time is really important because because you 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 know you, you, you to be mentored, you you do have to be willing to take in people's ideas wherever they come from and and they may just be corridor conversations but yeah they they have a huge impact on you we can all remember our primary school teacher or mm. or you know the first person you know when I was working called Cheryl Tickle who um when I was doing my undergraduate degree I mean just a massive influence on you mm. of opening your eyes to what might be possible what about you Nick because pr- uh, prior to Park Run you were running a, a retailer sweatshop and and then the background as as an elite runner so it, it's it's been ecle- it's been eclectic but who were the men who's sort of steered your career I'd say similar to Jeremy I think probably too many to mention there have been a couple of kind of seminal moments for me I remember when I worked in retail I worked at head office and um, I was having a terrible time with my manager and I spent all I used to give a guy a lift home every single day and I spent all the time in the car constantly moaning about my terrible manager. And he must have had six months of uh, me moaning about my terrible manager. And he eventually said, look, you've got two choices, really, like leave. So it's within your control to leave or influence your relationship with your terrible manager because you can influence that relationship with your terrible manager. And I think up until that point, I'd considered that you know management was a purely downward process so you you manage the people you were responsible for managing the people that reported into you and the responsibility of your relationship with your manager was entirely the responsibility of your manager and Mm -hmm. I think my career changed almost at that point I took responsibility for that relationship I made all of the modifications to turn it into a brilliant relationship he wasn't a terrible manager he was an amazing manager and it just needed that stimulus and I think without that one single stark conversation from somebody who was quite close to you, I'd probably be on a totally different journey. I thought the other thing he might have said to you is you can take the bus tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it was my car. <laughs> <laughs> it was your car. Fine. Fine. Okay. And was it, I mean, I, I always imagine a bit like, I don't want to lump everyone into being, you know, being loners, but I thought we thought researchers and, and runners. I mean, running is a very, very solo activity yeah maybe. Um, but then you know you have you have made it through to you know through retail which is very sort of a team culture there into park run now so i think there's um, is that about modifying yourself along the changing yeah. on the way or maybe maybe i think to that point about mentorship i've always been incredibly self-critical and reflective and so i think that allows you to learn and adapt along the way and be really, really conscious of the things that you could do better and the things that, that you're not getting right. So I think that's been been part of the process. I think I learned loads 
as as an athlete that have have helped me in terms of you know dealing with some of the challenges and anxieties and and you know probably the pressure that I've had in the workplace has never felt quite like the pressure and anxiety I had mm. uh, at a performance level so you know that's been quite interesting whether it's lonely I don't know I've always been quite a social person so I'd always rather do it with somebody else than on my own. Well, even at the original part run in, I think, 2004, they all met up for coffee afterwards. I think. That, was the whole, that was really the whole point of it, yeah. That was the point <laughs> of them, yeah. Jeremy, what about advice to, to people now who might be, you know, going into leadership or going up the ladder? Uh, I come back to, I, I, I think, never expect it very much to be certain. I think the choices you, we all make are, are you, thankfully, I think, you can't take the sort of subjective out of it. Um, they're judgment calls. Try not to worry too much if you make it right or wrong. But when you make a decision, go for it and uh, and make it the best you can. I think on the whole, you probably regret things you don't do rather than things you do. Um, because when Agreed, you do them... Yeah. When you do them, you then put your whole body and soul behind it and hopefully inspire some other people to come with you in that regard. And, and uh, I think not regretting things you haven't done, I think, is a key part of leadership. Yeah, don't listen to people giving you advice about leadership, I think. <laughs> is, uh, Another anti-CEO. Oh, uh, I just think it's, I, yeah, I think it's, it's individual and it's intuitive and there isn't a formulaic uh, answer to it. I think relationships, being able to build relationships is absolutely critical. And so, yeah, working on that, if I had to give any advice, would be uh, the, the one piece of advice. Great. Uh, so Jeremy Farrer from the Wellcome Trust and Nick Pearson from Parkrun, thanks very much for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Season 1 of Leading with me, James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review. Thank you.